All right, Bitcoiners, welcome to the next episode of FedWatch. Today, Ansel and I sat down with Stephen Van Meter to talk about macro and more importantly, bonds. We have not talked about bonds very much on FedWatch, and it's very interesting to get a bond bull on the show to talk about inflation, deflation, QE, and all these things that are happening and why he thinks that bonds fit into that. Um, before we get into it, want to talk about Paxful. Paxful is the sponsor of this show. Paxful is one of the biggest Bitcoin P2P exchanges in the world. I'm actually going to be interviewing the CEO, Ray Youssef, on Bitcoin Magazine podcast later this week, talking about all things P2P finance and all things Bitcoin. Uh, Paxful is really one of the most important Bitcoin companies out there. You may get your Bitcoin from Cash App or Coinbase or one of those other places in the United States, but people around the world don't have that kind of access and they don't necessarily have a bank account and Paxful solves that problem from them. They can use Paxful to get Bitcoin and trade things that they have, gift cards, um, local currency, and Paxful does a really, really good job of making Bitcoin super accessible for those living in countries that just don't have good financial infrastructure. So if you want to be a part of the P2P economy, if you live in the United States or abroad, you can be a part of it using Paxful.com. You can be a liquidity provider. You can buy and sell gift cards. There's a lot of opportunity to make money in the P2P economy and help a lot of people get onto Bitcoin. So check out Paxful.com backslash podcast so that they know we sent you there. Get the Bitcoin Dictionary, 180 terms of uh, Bitcoin knowledge downloaded into your brain. I, I'm excited to get into this interview because Steve Van Meter, um, I, he, he is the Bond King. And it, people need to go to his YouTube channel and watch some of his videos because he does. He puts on the little Burger King crown and he has all these props and like an up arrow and a down arrow and all this stuff for showing um, like, uh, you know, physical representation of what the bonds are doing bond yields and bond prices and uh, very educational. So um, I was very excited to speak with them and it was a great interview. All right, let's get right into it. Steven Van Meter. Steven Van Meter, welcome to FedWatch. Well, thank you for having me today. Steven, you have a fantastic audience over on YouTube where you are really teaching people about what is happening on the macro side of things. They call you the bond king and you have uh, a lot of interesting opinions around how bonds work in the grand scheme of things and uh, where they fit in a larger portfolio. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and your fantastic YouTube series and channel? Yeah, so I've been a financial advisor and money manager for, for this will be my 19th year. And the where the videos came from, um, like most money managers, you, you start writing a, a quarterly newsletter and that quarterly newsletter turned into monthly and the monthly started turning into weekly. And I thought, you know, as you get to these deeper concepts, it's really hard to put them on paper where people will understand them. So uh, my, well, in conjunction with my partner, my compliance officer, you know, we figured out how to do, you know, the, the videos and they were held on a private video server for a long time. And I don't know, one day I said, Hey, can, can I put these on YouTube? And he says, sure. And I thought, well, maybe a few people will watch them. I, I hadn't, I had no idea, but I have some absolutely amazing fans. And the reason we talk a lot about bonds is because the show is a macro show. We focus on the macro trends 
And if you don't understand the bond market, you, you really don't understand macro. They really go hand in hand. And a lot of people think it's all about the stock market. Well, it really starts with the bond market and then you take it from there. Yeah, they think it's all about the stock market or the Fed. And as we are learning more and more, uh, the stock market and the Fed really don't hold a candle to to the bond market. So we wanted to explore your macro thesis because it reminds me a little bit of Jeff Schneider and his Euro dollar stuff. Um, I've been going down the deflationary rabbit hole recently. Can you break it down for our audience? They're mostly like hard money Austrians, very similar to gold bugs. How do you see the macro environment out there? That's a great question. And in terms of you know, managing money and creating wealth, the, the way you make the most money is having dry powder or cash at market bottoms or at the bottom of whatever it is. If it's real estate, stocks, it, it doesn't really matter. And so as I looked at our monetary system, I realized, okay, you know, we're eight go, going at the time, eight years going in a 10-year run now. And I started to figure out that, hey, if I can find a way for my, my clients to buy low, you know, we will come out so much further ahead. And as I started dissecting this, I realized, you know, this is going to look a lot like the great financial crisis. And, and I started to go back and say, Steve, you need to be a student of the great financial crisis because what was a great financial crisis? Well, it was a debt crisis and we had a lot of bad debt that imploded. Well, I don't know if anyone would disagree with me, but over the last eight to 10 years, granted, we are in a debt-based system, so there is going to be more debt, but the quality of debt is terrible. It's not led to more economic growth. It's led to actually a lot slower growth. And then I looked at, okay, so we have uh, bad debt papered over with worse debt. And so what is the Fed going to do? Well, what did they do back in the great financial crisis? Well, they rapidly lowered interest rates and then they came in toward you know, the bottom, near the bottom of the stock market with this new thing called quantitative easing. And anyone that claims that they knew what it was or how it would work, they were guessing. And a few people got really lucky, but a lot of people got it wrong. And I said, okay, I know there's going to be another recession. I know this debt is going to fall apart. If I can be an expert on what quantitative easing is, how it works, and the Fed's response to this, not only can I position to perhaps buy very low, but perhaps I can actually make money on the move down. And if I can do both of those things, then I've done my job very well. If we look at my thesis, you know, where, where how does this all fit in? Well, it's very clear that a lot of people don't understand quantitative easing and they don't understand the cycles of the market. They don't understand that treasury yields actually lead stock prices lower on average from market peaks by three months. And, and, I, and I realize many of your listeners are shaking their head going, "What this guy is totally wrong. And all I can encourage them to do is go run a chart and you'll see treasury yields lead stock prices lower. And the reason that happens is because falling treasury yields are a sign of tight financial conditions or tightening financial conditions. And we learned this from Milton Friedman, who he, he really didn't, he kind of postulated this. He wasn't, he didn't actually have a chance to completely work out the whole view, but he said that low interest rates are a symptom of tight financial conditions or tight monetary policy. So I started started becoming an expert on the bond market and trying to figure out, okay, everyone says QE is inflationary. I started to go back and look at the post-grade financial crisis data. 
and there's a lot of things that just were missing. There's some people that put some great charts together said, look, you know, QE goes up and interest rates go up, but the monetary policy works with lags and sometimes very long lags. And the more I started digging in, I, I found people like Jeff Snyder, who is absolutely brilliant, Dr. Lacey Hunt, an expert in the bond market. And I started becoming a student of some of the smartest people out there and trying to figure out if this plays out again, how can I be positioned correctly? And my whole thesis now is built around that not only are we going to see a replay of the great financial crisis, it's going to be a lot worse. So I call it a great GFC 2.0 plus, and we're just going to have much larger moves than we had before, but the same opportunities will present themselves to the people that understand it. Talking about the great financial crisis 2.0 plus, like what does that actually mean for the dollar? Again, a lot of people listening to this show may expect inflation. I mean, if they are listening to this show, they know we've been talking about this deflation for a while. I guess in your eyes, you know, what does this mean for the dollar? The dollar is going to head higher. And this is an opinion that a lot of people completely disagree with. And there's a simple way to understand this relationship. And a lot of people can, can chart this. And so you can pull up treasury bonds, maybe your favorite treasury ETF, and then you can overlay the trade weighted dollar, DXY. And what you will find is, as I call them, uh, they have a relationship. They're like a, a couple that's dating. And there are times they're together and they're really happy with each other and they follow each other higher or lower. And then there's times right now where they're kind of split up. But the key is to understand is, okay, well, what does a strong or weak dollar mean? Well, if the dollar is rising or is high, it's a sign of tight financial conditions. If the dollar is falling, then it's a sign of loose financial conditions. So, so let's look on the other side of the coin. You have treasury yields, which are low, signaling tight financial conditions, and you have the dollar that's low, signaling there's loose financial conditions, and you can't have that. You can't have lower yields and a falling dollar. So I, I always like to point out to people, only one of them can be right. So at some point, either the dollar's gonna miss yields and, and he's gonna come running back to her, or yields are gonna miss a dollar and she's gonna come running back to him and interest rates are gonna rise. Money management and macro is all about probabilities. I mean, that is what it is, is nobody knows exactly how this is gonna play out, but if you can look at history and understand the relationships, you can kind of tilt everything into your favor. So the question is, is a is dollar gonna go higher or lower? Well, the real question then is where are treasury yields headed? Well, they're headed lower because you have the Fed running quantitative easing, which is deflationary and is designed to lower interest rates. You have large commercial banks buying uh, mountains of bonds. You, even though we are seeing some slowdown in the pace of foreign central banks buying, they are biasing toward the longer-term debt uh, for your listeners who look at the long-term option data. And you have the economy slowing down, you have lending starting to contract, you have financial conditions that are tight. So you have pretty much everything on one side and then the dollar over here by itself saying, nah, you're all wrong. The reality is the dollar is going to end up being wrong in my opinion and we will see the dollar rally to catch up. So my view is the dollar is headed, is not just headed higher, it's headed substantially higher. I mean, what exactly does higher mean uh, to you? Does that mean that uh, like a lot of gold bugs and, and people that they are worried about de-dollarization or they, they expect de-dollarization everywhere. They see the headlines out of Russia or headlines out of Saudi Arabia or China. Everyone's trying to de-dollarize. But uh, if the dollar's going higher, that means that this de-dollarization thing is kind of not true, right? So where, where do you see those two things or how do you explain that? 
Well, I look at Russia and I don't see them as a major trading partner in the United States. And so ever since they kind of dumped all their treasury yields, it hasn't had any effect on the broad treasury market at all. And a lot of people thought, oh, this will. Uh, China is a purpose-built exporter. If you look at everything about their country, they are an exporting nation. And it just so happens the dollar is the world's reserve currency. It also just so happens that the United States is the largest consuming nation. And it so happens demographically, which around the world, nobody's in the best shape. Of all the bad demographics, we have the best. So the reality is China may not love the dollar, but they're not leaving the dollar. And, and there's really no alternative. If they, you know, let's say they went to the euro. Okay, well, that means the Euro European Union has to become a net importer. Reality is the United States is still the best. And there's a lot of other factors that would have to change. I mean, the, the dollars of reserve currency just has so, so many things already in place that no other currency has. And then plus, we also happen to have the best military to make sure it's going to stay that way. And a lot of people don't like to, to think about that. But when you start zooming out from a macro and really a global view, a lot of these things do come into play. So I, I, I don't fall into the dollar uh, is going away camp at all. And, the, and there's another fact. There's about 10 plus trillion in, in foreign dollar denominated debt. I mean, it's going to have to get repaid. So let's just say the dollar is going to fade away in the years to come. It's not going away anytime soon. And as far as where I think the dollar is going, I think we'll see if you look at the trade weighted dollar DXY, it's been in a, a, a trading pattern you know, for about five years. I think we see it move over 103. And that would match my view that bond prices are going higher and treasury yields are going lower. So I know you touched on this a little bit, but let's go back to talking about QE. You mentioned at the beginning that you set out to become an expert in QE. Can you kind of, from a high level perspective, like explain what are the biggest misunderstandings people have about QE and what QE actually is doing? Yeah, the biggest misunderstanding of QE is the, the, the second part of the word, easing. It, uh, everyone thinks quantitative easing is money printing. And what's really important to understand is that quantitative easing tightens financial conditions before it eases them. And that is a concept so many people struggle with. And it was one that I, for, I mean, it took me a long time to accept the fact that and once I did, it started to make sense that in order to ease conditions, the Fed actually has to tighten them. And he's like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, the Fed has to lower interest rates. Well, we've already established that low interest rates are a sign of tightening financial conditions. So, okay, well, that's weird. Why would the Fed do that? Why would the Fed tighten financial conditions in order to ease them? Why can't they just magically ease them? Well, because the Fed can't force people to borrow. So if you look at lending, and that's really one of the key aspects that is overlooked by so many people is the lending data that comes out every Friday called the H.8. That Almost nobody looks at it, and it should be one of the most important things people focus on because in a debt-based economy, you need people to borrow. So the, the question that comes up is, are people more likely to borrow if interest rates rise or fall? Now, I'll argue that, yes, some people will be like, oh, rates are rising. I better go out and buy a home or car that I've been meaning to buy. Yes, that will happen. But there is a point that if interest rates on home mortgages were 7%, I can pretty much guarantee you only the people that had to get a mortgage would. So how do you get American consumers to borrow money, even, if, even though the price of good would go up? It doesn't matter. We're all obsessed about paying the least amount of interest. 
So even though I would rather pay a lower price for something that, and more interest so I could, cause I could pay it off quicker. The reality is most American consumers respond to lower interest rates. And so to get interest rates down, which is what QE is designed to do, you have to tighten financial conditions until they loosen. And what is that loosening in effect? It's when people come out and borrow and new currency is created in our system. Can you explain a little bit more like how does the Fed tighten conditions? Because it doesn't seem as though they're actually doing that. Yeah, and, and that's because a lot of people don't understand the mechanics of what QE is. So it is actually a swap in reserves. And this is something, if, you're, if your listeners haven't heard of Dr. Lacey Hunt, they should absolutely become a student of his research. Most people believe that when the Fed buys a bond off of the a commercial bank, so they're either buying a U.S. Treasury security or mortgage-backed security, that they're actually giving the banks money. And then there's some belief that the banks are actually taking that money and buying stocks, which is odd to me, but that's what everyone believes is happening is the banks are actually getting money for this. And that is not true at all. So the banks hold in reserves, us treasuries and mortgage backed securities under quantitative easing, the fed comes in and they actually swap them with a cash or overnight reserve. So the fed takes that bond. uh, We'll just say it's a Treasury off the supply of the markets. So now it's not available. You can't buy it from the Fed. You can't short it from the Fed. It's removed from the market. And in exchange for that, the banks get a cash reserve. And what's critical about that cash reserve is it's held at a Federal Reserve member bank in the name of the, of the bank they bought. It is for. And the banks can't directly pull that money out. So I like to refer to it as a collateral account. Because a collateral account is something that you that you have, but you don't have. You don't have access to. You you can say it's yours, but you can't go get it. Uh, or a great example of that is it's like a trust account or a uniform gift to minors. There's money there, but the stipulations say that you can't get it. And so the whole purpose of these reserve assets that are created by quantitative easing is they're designed for the uh, banks to borrow or use them to lend against. The problem with them is the banks have to risk their capital because they can't access the actual money if something happened to the underlying asset. And then say, I, as a borrower, have to risk my collateral. And right now, the banks don't really want to do that. So the notion that there's any form of easing going on here is not true at all because there's money is actually being removed from the economy. If you look at the cycle, the banks are giving up an asset they can actually sell. So they could take that bond in their reserves and sell it and raise cash. And instead, they're giving that up for something they can't touch. And then the Fed's coming in the next day, in the next week and next month and buying more. Well, where is the bank going to get this endless supply of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities? Well, they have to go out on the market and buy more. But it's not like the Fed's giving them the money to do that. And so it actually is pulling liquidity out of the system in order to create liquidity. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. And when they realize that, hopefully they have that aha moment that I did. I'm right there with you. I think that the QE is taking the collateral out of the system because, you know, a reserve at the Fed, you're saying, is less liquid than a treasury at the bank because they can use that treasury in the funding markets to access capital when they need to. But if it's a reserve on their balance sheet at the Fed, they can't use that in the same way. So it's, it creates illiquid conditions. Wow. That, yeah, that's very interesting. And there's also a a stigma attached to reserves. Like if, if you're a bank and you needed a bailout or something, 
um, or now I guess a corporate that needed your bonds bought, there, there is a stigma attached to that. So uh, all of this to, in my mind says, hey, credit is contracting uh, and economic growth is slowing or, or negative. It, it might even be negative, but how do we square that and say like, okay, asset prices are going up, stocks are going up, uh, but the, there's no inflation and the economy is actually shrinking. Uh, and it's just a weird world we find ourselves in. It, it is. And the best way I can try to explain that to people is that money finds a home of for its, where it's the highest return. And right now, people believe the highest return for their money is in the equity market, oddly enough, at the top. I mean, baffles me that we haven't learned from the ta- past two market peaks and in the real estate market. But th- I think the difference, and I, I personally struggle with this, is people actually believe that quantitative easing magically supports asset prices. So they're willing to take an excessive amount of risk with their money. And yet there's, the, there's only circumstantial evidence that people can point to. As they say, well, look at, look at the bull market run you know, over the last 10 years. And it's all the QE. Well, there's two arguments that one, well, actually there's several, one, uh, it wasn't the QE that caused asset prices to rise. It was corporate share buybacks. I mean, go look at what corporations were buying over the last eight to 10 years, and you'll see they were the largest buyer. The second point is that when we defended quantitative tightening, the stock market didn't crash. Yeah, it, it, it got stuck for a while, but it didn't plummet. And then back in March, uh, the big drop there, the Fed was doing quantitative easing. So the whole notion is, well, wait a minute. If, if the Fed can prop asset prices up, why did the market even go down? It, it shouldn't have gone down. And so we, we run into this problem where you're, you're right. The, the, the assets, these reserve assets are completely illiquid. The banks don't want to lend. We've had the worst economic growth of any expansion in the history of the United States. It's just a, a matter of fact. Lending is contracting. And why are we seeing asset prices still go? Because it's the last phase. As If you look historically, you'll see the lending will start to contract. And the next thing you know, asset prices will crump crumbling down. It's not an instantaneous reaction. It's a delayed reaction. Okay. So you think we're at or close to the top. It's the party is going to be over soon. Uh, I'm curious, like I've heard alternative narratives. I've heard that assets are the new savings vehicle, that there's no good place to park your money anymore. That's liquid. What does your theory have to do with kind of like this trend of people thinking of stocks as savings? Yeah, that always happens at market peaks. It's just people forget. And in the, in the what people will come to me and I'll see them in the comments on my videos. And so I don't understand why would I buy, say, a 10-year treasury at half a percent versus an equity? You know, I, I don't get it. And, the, and what people don't understand is that bond prices can actually go up during inflation. In fact, they can go up substantially during deflationary periods. So people look at a bond and they don't understand that you can actually buy a bond for price appreciation, which, again, baffles a lot of people. And so because they don't understand the bond market and what it provides, they go buy equities thinking that, well, these can't go down. And then when they end up going down, oddly enough, they turn and buy bonds that now have already gone up. And it, it, it doesn't make any sense, but a lot of it comes down to the fact that people do not understand how bonds work as a safe haven and how they perform during deflationary periods when interest rates go down because they don't understand that there's an inverse 
relationship between bond prices and treasury yields. And if you think yields are going down, even if it's half a percent or 1% on the 30 year, uh, go look, I'll encourage all your listeners to go to say investopedia.com and look up the word duration and then go look up their favorite treasury. Well, they probably don't have a favorite one. Go look up a treasury ETF because you probably, probably never looked at one before and go find the duration for it and then do some math and you find out, oh wow, I, if Steve's right and interest rates get near zero, there's substantial upside in the treasury market, whereas one could argue there isn't possibly a whole lot of upside in the equity market right now. All right. So I'd like to transition to like forward looking five to 10 years down the road. If, uh, you know, your macro thesis saying that this is going to be bigger than 2008, the GFC two plus 2.0 plus. <laughs> um, so do you, do you think that we can hold it together? Uh, do you, I mean, are we going towards a Bretton Woods 2.0? Is there going to be massive, um, you know, maybe deglobalization where we uh, trading international trade grinds down to zero? Uh, you know, where do you see the next five to 10 years? Yeah, and that, that is a really tough question. Uh, from a macro perspective, I'm about two to three years out. And I, I'll tell anybody, if, if someone comes out and says they're predicting five to 10 years out, they're guessing because you know, the monetary system itself is super resilient. I mean, it, it will survive. And a lot of people say, well, that means my house is going to be worth more. No, 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 no. The system, monetary system will survive. It'll just bring everything down to the level that it needs to be. And, and I, I have this weird kind of analogy, and maybe it won't make any sense. But imagine if our height was related to our blood pressure. So as our blood pressure went up to balance it out, our bodies just got taller. Well, think of the monetary system as, hey, if we don't have enough new money being created through lending and the economy is going to shrink, well, then asset prices have to shrink. So what will happen is the monetary system will survive. It's just asset prices will be repriced at whatever level they need to be. Now, the financial system is a whole different story because the financial system almost broke in 2008 and 9. And, and a lot of people cannot appreciate just how close it came. Now, we, now, what has the Fed done? They've stacked all the banks full of these illiquid reserves, and then they go bragging about, oh, the banks are really solid. It's like, yeah, well, they can't, they can't do anything with those reserves. So will the financial system have problems? Yes, it will. Do I expect banks will fail? Yeah, I expect small and medium-sized banks to fail. I don't think the majors are going to fail because the Fed's, the, the Fed's got them stacked up with too many reserves, and that's not going to happen. Is it possible we see a Bretton Woods too? At some point, it is possible. The, the challenge is how do you get away from the dollar? Because, you know, I look at the reserve currency, you know, let's say we're playing a, a game of risk, right? And right now, the United States has a special, you know, maybe glass little chalice sitting on its board. And that's called the world's reserve currency. You want that because it means you can, you know, trade debt for real assets. Well, there is a point where if everyone gets fed up with it, as has happened in the past, that gets moved to the middle of the board and everyone fights over. So you kind of look around the world and say, okay, you know, why is the United States such a military superpower? Why have we gone out of our way for, for decades to eliminate our competitors? Well, because we know the value of that and we're going to fight for it. I don't know if that gets moved to another country because I'm not sure who can handle it, but maybe the terms of it, maybe the relationship changes. And, and one of the challenges we have is as Jeff Snyder will point out, is you, you have the Fed setting monetary policy for the United States, but they don't realize they're setting it for the whole world. And that's the problem with the world's reserve currency and the whole euro, euro dollar system is, and that's why people get fed up with the United States because 
you know, the Fed comes in and tightens policy just as things around the world are starting to go good. And all of a sudden we pull liquidity out of the global economy and the Fed goes, hey, not our problem. It's not our money. It's like, yeah, well, it, there is an issue here. So I, I really don't know five to 10 years how this plays out. Do I think things look differently? Yes, but if I'm going to come out here and, and, and tell you guys for sure that I have a strong opinion of how it can go, I, I would be literally throwing darts at the wall. Appreciate the honesty and the explanation. I found that to you know be very enlightening. Um, kind of talking about potentially at some point the chalice moving to the middle of the board. Uh, that's kind of a moment that Bitcoiners are counting on at some point and they're hoping that Bitcoin can fill that role as digital gold, as a global neutral clearing layer for the internet. Um, as a macro insider, you know, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin? Have you even thought about it as a potential global monetary competitor? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So well, let's be full disclosure on, on Bitcoin and in, in, in any cryptocurrency. I've never owned one and I currently don't own one. And I've never owned it in a portfolio. So I can truly give you almost a very neutral view of how I, of what I think of it. So the first question that comes up, okay, could it be a currency? It could be a reserve currency. I mean, if you look at how it's designed in blockchain, you say, well, this is, this is a really good fit. The question that I would pose to anyone who's hoping that, say, Bitcoin was going to take over that role is, do they really think central planners are going to enrich them or are they just going to come out with their own version of it? My guess is central planners will just come out with their own version of it because effectively now they're putting the global monetary system into, you know, an unknown group of people. And I, and I don't mean to say that people that own Bitcoin are unknown. There's just a lot of people all over the world that own it and they would become extremely rich. And that is not generally how we see you know, central bankers like to handle these situations. Now, could they come out with their own version? Sure. And I could see that having a very good role there. These, as an investment class, you know, I'm really not sure about it because I am licensed and registered. It's not something I can buy on the open exchanges. I don't, I mean, maybe you guys tell me, I don't even know if there's a Bitcoin ETF yet. Uh, yeah, there is. Nice. They're fighting for it. Right. There's, so, some, there's some equities that are like pseudo- Bitcoin ETFs, but that's about it. But it's not like buying, say, the euro or the yen or anything like that. So from from a, an investment standpoint, I know a lot of people think that it's going to do very well when everything else goes bad. And so, okay, so let's just take a look at that. And again, I, I don't know. I haven't looked at a Bitcoin chart other than what I see on Twitter from time to time. But I have to look at it this way. One, we don't have enough history of it going through a financial crisis to know that for an answer. Number two, I would want to go look at what it, how it's compared to. So this is what I would do with any asset class. If someone came to say, well, what do you think is going to happen with this? I would go and look at its relationship. So if Bitcoin was trading, say, similar to treasury bonds, I would say, okay, well, then it clearly is a defensive asset class. If you said, well, it's trading like tech stocks, I'm like, well, I would be pretty concerned that perhaps it may not work the way uh, everyone is hoping it work. In the end, nobody really knows. And it certainly is an absolute bet that maybe it is the answer and it makes a, a small number of people rich. And I won't, unfortunately, be one of them. Um, but the other side is it could have a major pullback and then become a huge buy at that point, too. I mean, we don't really know. And that's why I think it's challenging just from an investment standpoint to not overcommit to anything or even to say, hey, I have a large holding of Bitcoin or it could be gold. And my answer is, well, 
let's pretend that you really disagree with everything I say, but you'll agree that there's a small probability that I'm right. Are you hedging your position somehow? Because what if I am right and you see a, a large portion of your net worth get evaporated and that's not fun when you could have said, hey, I'll sell a little bit while it's high, take a defensive position with it. And if Steve's wrong and he's an idiot, well, okay, so I, I still made a bunch of money. And if he's right, well, then I can sell my hedge and buy more of these at a lower price with more money. So I guess talking about like taking a defensive position, you're obviously talking about bonds as a fantastic vehicle for that. Um, gold traditionally has served that purpose. In recent months, there has been a high correlation between gold and Bitcoin. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers on that correlation, but curious what your thoughts are on gold in general um, in the future and in this upcoming Great Recession. Yeah, I think we see a play out just like we did back in 2008, where real yields or inflation adjusted yields actually rose. And there's an inverse relationship between gold and real yields. And so gold actually pulled back around 30% uh, in the midst of a, a multi-year uh, bull market. And if someone would have, say, hedged their gold with bonds, they could have made a very nice you know, double-digit return in bonds, taken that, sold that, and bought more gold 30% off, and then rode it up for the next stage. I think it went up for, what, about two years after that, as real yields went back down. And to me, that's just prudent. I mean, you're just hedging your risk. So if, if gold continues to go up, or Bitcoin continues to go up, all right, well, you didn't make quite as much as you could have, but if it goes down, well, what's the best way to take care of that problem? Is buy more with more money. So in the short term, I am gold bearish, not a very popular view these days, but long term, I'm gold bull. And, and, I, and if Bitcoin is trading that way, then I would hold the same view that, you know, perhaps I'm, I'm Bitcoin bearish and hopefully maybe there'll be an ETF around so I can actually participate in that if it does trade higher like uh, gold will, uh, as I think gold will go higher as real yields go down. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show and breaking down these complicated subjects and even kind of giving us some of your unpopular opinions. Uh, I hope that our audience will listen and not dislike you for uh, what you might have to say about Bitcoin or gold. I, I really appreciate you coming on and really explaining these things. And I think that there's some excellent sound bites here of you uh, breaking down, you know, like uh, blood pressure going up and the height growing. And, you know, those kind of examples, uh, I think are really helpful. Well, thank you. I think it's important for people to say it's like, I, I, I don't dislike Bitcoin. I don't dislike gold. I just think when it comes to managing your own money, or in my case, managing other people's money, you have to just look at the probabilities and you have to assign the fact that, hey, you know what, there is a small chance I could be right. And that small chance that I'm right turns out to be things are really bad. Well, then you'd be really glad you took a hedge. And I think that's what we all have to look at you know, when it comes to our money. So I really do appreciate you guys having me on your show. And I hope your listeners uh, do take to heart some of the things I said. And, and for them, if they're overweighted in gold and Bitcoin, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but if I'm right, I hope they, you know, maybe take a small consideration and uh, put a little protection on their investment. Steve, where can people find you if they want to learn more? Yeah, I have a YouTube show uh, that runs uh, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And we cover the macro data and the lending data. And I think uh, it would be a great resource for them to come and learn more about macro and bonds and, uh, and share in my view and participate. And perhaps uh, we can help uh, ease their mind in terms of how to you know, protect their investments going forward. Awesome. And for the listeners, you guys can find the show on Bitcoin Magazine. You can find me at CK underscore Snarks. You can find Ansel at Ansel Lindner. And the Bitcoin Dictionary is at bitcoindictionary.cc 
make sure to check that out for a comprehensive guide of all the Bitcoin terms. So, Steve, if you want to learn more about Bitcoin, that would be a great resource. It's uh, it's over on Amazon if you want to check that out. Well, it sounds like that's something I need to pick up soon. Awesome. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.